and record here. All right, looks like it's recording. It's always a plus. I recorded uh, one of these great conversations about two weeks ago and managed not to record the first hour of it. So that, oh, that worked wow. poorly. So, hey, folks, uh, back again with our irregularly scheduled, irregular uh, series of interviews and discussions, conversations with folks. I've got uh, with us today, uh, somebody I'm very excited about talking to in this particular moment in history and in our current context. Uh, James B. Lesseur is the Samuel Clark Waugh Distinguished Professor of International Relations and the Chair of the Department of History at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Um, and he's also, and perhaps more importantly for purposes of this conversation, a uh, documentarian. And he has been um, out in the country uh, recording the tales of this past year, uh, particularly within the context, context of the pandemic. And so I really wanted to get his take and insights um, on what the nation's going through and, and what the view of a, of a trained and uh, distinguished historian would be. So with that, I'm going to shut up. I'm going to let James introduce himself. Uh, talk a little bit about his past documentary work, and then we can hopefully move forward into uh, the current context. James? Um, well, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a nice to meet you uh, this way. Uh, it's too bad we can't meet in person, but, you know, this whole year has been been where we've been able to do things like this that we, you know, we couldn't do before or didn't do before in the same way. Um, just a little bit about like what I'm doing right now. Um, I'm currently working on a movie called Four Seasons of COVID. Um, I wasn't planning on making this movie because, you know, a year ago I didn't think about COVID as a film, a subject for a film. Um, we had just finished making our first feature film that we released to film festivals. It's going through the film festival circuit right now. We are just finishing up in Amman, Jordan with the movie, The Art of Descent. Um, and we'd won <clears throat> their Feather Award for Best Documentary Feature Film uh, this week. Uh, and, and what happened was, just a little bit about how, how this worked, we worked for about three or four years uh, on the film. It follows the history of the dissident movement in Czechoslovakia after the Soviet invasion from 1968 through the Velvet Revolution and after. Um, uh, you know, the first decade after the Velvet Revolution and kind of follows several people just prominent dissidents, Václav Havel, Marta Kofisova, uh, a number of other really important people in the Czech Republic or the former Czechoslovakia. Um, I've always been interested in the history of intellectuals. That's what I did my PhD in at Chicago. Um, and the reason I got into filmmaking a few years ago, well, maybe 15 years ago at this point, is I started to work on a first film, uh, which I'm still working on. Um, that's called Now the Peril of Descent. And I was looking at, because I'm trained in North African history and particularly Algeria and France. And I was looking at the kind of immigration, forced exiles, uh, um, people who were forced into exile from North Africa during the 1990s in the aftermath of the Salman Rushdie affair. Um, so from 1989, basically all the intellectuals who went into exile around the world and not just in Europe, but in the United States and elsewhere and so I've been really focusing on, on, on this question of intellectuals and exile and dissent for a long, long time. Um, the reason I paused uh, first, uh, you know, filmmaking has changed quite a lot. When I first started making film, 
it was, you know, tapes and you had to cut and the, the, there was non, there was destructive editing. So if you made a mistake, you had to redo everything. Right. It's gotten a lot easier in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. So I feel much more confident editing myself and I do a lot of my own editing now. Um, so I started to work on that, that film, um, uh, The Peril of Descent. Uh, I didn't have a name for it then, but I do now. Um, and we were actually scheduled to kind of begin resuming that after I finished this last one, The Art of Descent. Um, we pushed it out to festivals and we were just starting to work on actually two other movies. And what happened was last, last March, like everybody else, um, I was wondering how to, how to document um, what we're going through. So it didn't start out as a film initially. The current film I'm working on now, Four Seasons of COVID, didn't start out as a film. It started as kind of these night voyages <laughs> where I'd walk out in the empty streets in Lincoln, Nebraska, but it, there was nobody there. I was the only one out at all filming in these empty streets. And it just it was just weird. It was an interesting time. I took a lot of photographs because I'm a photographer as well. Um, and then I just kind of started to kind of think about how to put this together. So my musician, my composer, um, Tom Larson, he and I began to talk about putting some of these initial things into sound. So we played with that. We put some of these initial, you know, voyages into the night in Lincoln, Nebraska to sound. And we were just playing around. And I talked to another uh, friend of mine who's a poet in Lincoln, and he said he would be interested in adding a poetic dimension to it. Um, we and And then <clears throat> I began to kind of think about how to how to expand it. My plan was, you know, maybe just do 10 minute little tiny thing that we would we would, you know, just kind of do for fun. But then the George Floyd um, incidents happened, you know, murder happened. And I happened to be in the streets because I was I had made it a kind of a nightly daily activity. I would just go into the streets all year and try to chronicle what I was seeing. Now I live in Nebraska. I've also been in South Dakota filming uh, uh, quite a bit, actually. Um, <clears throat> so, and I'm specifically focusing on Nebraska. Um, and there's a reason for that because UNMC is here. University of, Mass University of Nebraska College of Medicine um, is, is here. And it's, uh, it's obviously the most important place for infectious diseases in the United States. So um, I started to work with, in, with my colleague in UNMC and so I've been partnering with UNMC on this part of the movie, the medical part of the movie, because as you know, the print, the Diamond Princess uh, cruise line um, evacuees went into Omaha. The Wuhan evacuees went into Omaha as well. So Nebraska happens to be an epicenter for one of the, and it is the world-class uh, infectious disease uh, hospital in the country. Um, and so I began to kind of think about how to make the movie bigger and, and more interesting. So I've contacted, I've been focusing on a lot of local journalists actually, uh, because I was in the streets in Lincoln during the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, <clears throat> and that's where I began to see like the possibility of making a movie because it became, it wasn't just COVID anymore. It was COVID and race and, and, you know, and then the election was heating up. So it became COVID race election. So the movie kind of, kind of developing. Um, then I went to South Dakota to look at the, the way that South, the government or, you know, the, the, the um, governor of South Dakota was marketing tourism in South Dakota, because I know that a lot of my friends who couldn't travel abroad or go to other places for vacation were going to South Dakota. So it was just a really interesting kind of 
thing I was looking at is like why people are going to South Dakota, what are they doing there? So I, you know, I went to Deadwood, I filmed in Deadwood this summer and it was just, it's just fun. I mean, I had a lot of good time. I had a really good time because I was filming. I was just kind of following things as best I could. Um, and, and what I've tried to do in the last few months is try to figure out how to close it. So I've got an ending of the movie already planned. Uh, it's a very Nebraska ending. I don't want to give it away. I won't give it away, but it's a Nebraska ending. <laughs> People will like it, I, I think. Um, but, it, you know, for me as a filmmaker, the challenge was to kind of just tell this story without taking a side. So it's a difficult issue. Uh, this year has become uh, an issue where it's very hard to stay neutral on a lot of events, you know, um, dealing with, you know, uh, uh, Lincoln's efforts to deal with, uh, you know, um, police reform, those kinds of issues. So it's just, it's just, uh, and it's brought me into a question of like an, an interrogating myself and interrogating where I live in a more systematic way, because I'm, I'm an historian who usually works other places around mm -hmm. the globe, you know? So it's just been an interesting experience for me, um, that part of it, but you know, the, 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 and then this, this last week um, has, I think, made it the film even more urgent. Um, I think it's clear. I have a friend uh, who was actually in DC filming for me um, during the, on the 6th. So I have filmed from the 6th, not inside the Capitol, but I've got filmed from the protests and the streets and, you know, the crowds and stuff. Um, and I'm, I was planning on going. I, I thought about going actually for, to, to film it. But I haven't flown since since COVID happened. The last time I was overseas was I was in Budapest right before everything shut down. Um, and so, you know, all the trips I've been taking are just local trips I can drive with my car. So that I've got an area around Nebraska that I can travel to by car that I've been filming at. Um, and again, you know, I think this year has been just uh, uh, unlike any other year. So I think one of the things that that happened this week that I think brought us into this conversation was, you know, the, the decision by Twitter and other platforms to ban President Trump. Um, and it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting time <laughs> uh, for, for social media. Uh, it's, uh, it looks like the people who attacked the Capitol um, had made plans to possibly take hostages, if not worse. Um, you know, so I think an, an abstract kind of, you know, laissez-faire approach to this whole um, thing has, has changed, I think, a lot this week. And I think like everybody else, I'm, I'm, I was in shock. I didn't sleep at all this week, just watching the news, reading the news, getting up, you know, really early in the morning and just start to read the news um, to figure out what happened. Um, and it's, it's, a, there's a reckoning coming and I'm not sure what, what it means. Uh, but I definitely think that the, the movie that I've been making will have a, a different audience now. So. Yeah, certainly. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, so much of this is of the moment, right? It's the, the collision of, of technology and I mean, just the fact that we're having this discussion in this format with the set of means um, is really is definitive. It's, uh, you know, technology has sort of birthed this moment in so many different ways. Um, you know, if you, if you go back and look at the Prague Spring, I mean, think about that 
which took place, um, you know, with no access to, to media by dissidents, essentially, and completely a, a creature of uh, grassroots um, person-to-person communication, uh, where events today are rapidly overtaken by very disintermediated mm-hmm. <laughs> conversations um, and contexts. And I think it does have a, a huge shaping influence. Um, you know, I, I've struggled with this myself um, on a lot of levels. Uh, one was um, an experience I had uh, managing a congressional campaign back in the 90s. Um, our opponent, who was a, a state senator in Colorado, had gone on uh, a, what was then called a militia radio station. It was a shortwave radio station operating out of Johnstown, Colorado. And, um, you know, I didn't want to send my candidate into that forum uh, to respond. So I went myself. I, I did two separate interviews on uh, a militia radio station. And um, it, it wasn't contentious. I mean, it was, you know, my my goal was just to get our message out. My candidate was was a moderate Democrat, and, uh, did not have ex- you know, had very moderated um, views on gun control and some of these other issues. Uh, and I, I returned to the office um, to find, uh, you know, a whole bunch of death threats uh, aimed at me <laughs> because I had been the voice. And at mm-hmm. that point in time in northern Colorado, there was a, and I think there still is, a significant militia movement, um, obviously because there was a radio station in Johnstown that was broadcasting on short wave, uh, but also in LaPorte, Colorado, which was just outside of Fort Collins um, and not very far from our office. And so, uh, you know, that was, you know, thankfully we had resources that we could draw upon, but I was driving back and forth um, from Denver each day to Fort Collins. And I did for the first time in my life, I started carrying a gun and I kept a gun in the desk of my office. And it was because we had very credible threats and thankfully I had friends um, in the Denver police department in their intelligence unit where I had a, a lawyer really who helped me interface with those folks, but they said the threats were, were significant. And in Colorado, we had a, a history that Allen Berg assassination um, was still something that's, you know, I keep in my mind, uh, Alan Berg was a talk show host and he was uh, executed in his front yard by members of the order, a right-wing militia group out of Montana, I believe. And so, you know, as I watched this happen and I watched, you know, you, you learn to recognize some of these right-wing extremist groups um, by a lot of their you know, messaging and their, these days it's all over their t-shirts. I mean, it's, it's kind of unbelievable in a way, uh, but it did, it did strike a certain chord, certain resonance. Um, and, you know, I'm curious, you know, as I, as I fight through the emotions to try to get to an analytical frame on this, um, you know, what are your thoughts about sort of the, not just the, the social, context in the media context but you know where do we place this in sort of the broader scope of history of 
movements of dissent. Well, I mean, I uh, last this this last week, just a couple of days ago, I interviewed a, a local journalist, and he played a death threat that they got at the station right before I got there um, in Lincoln, Nebraska. So, you know, uh, and and I showed that clip to a friend of mine who knows the kind of totality of the work I've been doing, and he said just right off the bat, "Well, you don't have to go to Algeria to look for death threats anymore." Right. Um, this is what I see. I mean, as someone who's actually studied this probably is, well, probably not probably, but more than anybody else in the world has like the history of dissent, the way that it worked in the Muslim world coming out of the Salman Rushdie affair. Right. Um, it's a really specific kind of genealogy because it, you know, that that fatwa that I told Khomeini issued against Salman Rushdie broke all the norms in Islamic uh, jurisprudence. Uh, it was the first kind of Trans, I called it a first transcontinental fatwa. Uh, I wrote about that in an essay. Uh, it was the first time a, a death threat went across because you couldn't do it in a country, technically within Islam, you couldn't issue a death threat within a country that wasn't uh, controlled by a Muslim prince. So it was actually completely unorthodox the way that the death threat was used. And and then, you know, in the 1990s and 2000, I, I focused on those people. I, I, I wrote about them, I, I, I interviewed many, many dozens of people who were under death threats in France and the United States, et cetera. I've interviewed jihadists who were issuing the death threats um, in Belgium and other places um, and in Holland. And so I, I, the way I see this now is it's not an exotic thing anymore. Um, the, the, I mean, if a local journalist, in, and this is part of the film I'm making, if a local journalist in Lincoln, Nebraska, and it's getting real, Credible death threats, right? Uh, and not just one, but many, <laughs> right? right. Um, it, it, it really does bring home where we are, and these could be death threats on the left or right. They're not. They're not sure. just exclusively right wing, right? They're left wing death threats too. And so I think that we're living we're living in this really interesting time, unfortunately, where where these things are actually real um, and they're scary and. And they are both sides doing this in, in extreme ways, right? Um, and you know, I I was covering the the um, the protests at the at the Lincoln Capitol on the sixth. I was filming there, um, and you know, I've been doing this for a long time, and I'm I'm also trying to be somewhat objective. I don't demon I don't like to demonize people. Uh, there are many people who actually just um, who are uh, who are literally disgruntled with the political machinery uh, that we live in today, the status quo, you know, um, and and they have been listening to, you know, mainstream, Fox News is mainstream media, right? I mean, it's not a, it's not a, <laughs> it's not in a hallway down where nobody, you know, this is it, it's major. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really one of the main channels where people get the news, right? Um, and they've been listening to this kind of narrative coming out of places like Fox News that's counterfactual, oftentimes heavily biased, you know, and I'm sure that they say that, I know they say the same things about CNN. So that's part of, I think everybody's sick of the CNN Fox News wars, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what I, what I, and I'm a from Montana. So to, to go back to your question of like what you were talking about, and uh, I grew up in Montana where there were survivalists in the seventies, you know, people who barricaded their houses poured cement. I mean, my neighbor poured cement 
on their floor and put boulders in there so <laughs> they wouldn't suffer from attacks from like, you know, what I'm, I'm used to survivalists. I understand them. I, I grew up with them, not, not in the same house, but I grew up around right. them. I, I get that. Right. Um, but there's something very different going on right now. Um, um, and I think that, you know, it's an interesting question as a filmmaker and I'm a historian too. I'm a professor. So, you know, and I, I, most of my colleagues probably think I'm, you know, not far enough on the left, uh, on the left, right? So I'm kind of more of a kind of middle ground person, generally, neither left nor right. It just, you know, I'm not even registered anything, right? Um, and I don't like either, I don't like the Democrat Party and I don't like the Republican Party, right? You know, but I'm, you know, so I've tried to be kind of open-minded, but I think this week, this last week has made it more difficult to, Kind of hold that middle ground for people who are like me all right um at the same time i think that the you know it's a, there's an obligation as an historian i'm not a i'm not a you know i'm not coming in with a heavily slanted idea of how interviews i interview people on every side of the political spectrum right now right and i don't think a lot of people are going to like that because i'm not just interviewing one side right and uh, I'm sure that some of my colleagues will have huge problems with the fact that I'm interviewing some of the people I'm interviewing, right? At the same time, you know, some of the people I'm interviewing won't like the other people I'm interviewing, right? Um, but let me give you an example of like how this, how this worked in my previous work. When, when I was uh, working on this Algerian exile group that met, went to Paris and to France, you know, the, this is an example of how crazy that world was, which is almost kind of where we are now, right? Um, to me, this is one of the ironies, the whole thing. Um, I, a very good friend of mine, who's somebody I interviewed multiple times in Paris, who had um, been issued death threats by the Islamists from Algeria. And then he was issued um, a death threat. I, I, I was there when he had, he showed me a death threat that he got um, from Al Qaeda in Iraq, right? Um, this guy was hunted first in Algeria. He moved to France and then the Al Qaeda in Iraq was trying to kill him. Right. Um, but, but he was also teaching university. So one of the things is his told me that his, the, the person who was in his department, that was his boss, one of his bosses was the Islamist who issued the death threats against his brother. They both ended up in exile in France because the Islamists were being hunted by the Algerian junta regime as well, right? So what I find is just that incredible, and now this movie that I've been working on for like 15 years now, Parallel of Descent, I'm thinking about going not just in this, it obviously can't be confined to Islam, radical Islam anymore, right? I mean, there were death threats against the Dixie Chicks for talking about George Bush's war in Iraq, right? Um, and I consider those kind of like Al-Qaeda-like death threats. They were real, they were credible, and they were going to kill the Dixie Chicks for <laughs> protesting right. the war in Iraq. So I think, you know, America is now in this position where, and that was, a, that was in Iraq. Now it's even far worse because the distortion um, and the kind of like just debates uh, are, are like, they're really difficult to have now because everybody always said, well, you're taking a side. You know, and, and the, I think that the truth of this, this really comes to, I'm a historian and I'm a theorist. So I lay a lot of this at the left, the hands of the left. They're the ones who deconstructed the truth. Derrida, that whole group. They're the ones who took apart the truth and said that it was all about power and discourse, right? 
Right. And I'm, I, you know, I, I knew Derrida, <laughs> you know, I knew him from my time in Paris. I studied, Bourdieu was my mentor in, in France. I know, I know, uh, I know that whole group. I knew them intimately. I worked with them. Right. Um, and I, I think there's a, it's a bit disingenuous to what's, what I find kind of interesting now intellectually is so the left deconstructed truth said it was all about power. Then the right wing Fo Ella Fox mimics that, right? And right. says, well, it's all about power, right? And they've, they've just appropriated it and so on and so forth. But a lot of this deconstruction led to the kind of climate that we're in now, right? And I think that that is a more interesting kind of intellectual thing. Um, and I find it very, very interesting <laughs> that this deconstruction and then, and now the left resorts to a notion of the truth and holds the, the notion of the truth, right? Um, and says that everybody doesn't adhere to that notion, the particular notion, right? Is untruthful or in working in f bad faith or fal false consciousness or whatever. And I just find it far more interesting than that. It's much more subtle and much more nuanced. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, you know, I'm, you know, I, I have to admit, I was one of those people who deconstructed things, right? Sure. Um, and I think we all did. We all, we, all, we all like language games. We like to play with power and language and discourse. And we understand that. I mean, people who work in my realm, we all like that, right? right. But I also find that, you know, it, it's, it's interesting when you're a filmmaker and trying to slice these things up in cinema. Um, you know, for example, in, in, the, the, in the movie we made about Basam Havel and the dissidents, you know, um, we had we had spent a lot of time in the in the Czech TV archives, which is a communist controlled state media archive. Right. Um, and it's really hard to make a movie about dissidents using the state control archives. <laughs> like, right. It's really, it, you know, yeah, they're not in the archives. And if they are, they're in these kind of weird um, uh, Stalinist kind of framework, you know. So we have we found some film about Václav Havel, but it was like the Candyman from Václav Havel's uh, family kind of business. They they owned Václav Havel's family was immensely wealth wealthy in Prague, and they owned uh, this thing called the Cerna Palace, which was one of the first true European malls. Uh, it's a really huge building, in Prague, and you know they had a Candyman who sold candy in the Havel, you know, building and. He gave the really inter interesting interview <laughs> about, you know, like what it was like to work for these bourgeois, you know, slimy capitalist pigs and stuff like that. And it's just really interesting because, but you know, so they they're the the Stalinist-esque state resorted to Candyman to demonize the capitalists <laughs> in Prague, you know, and 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 so, but it, it's interesting because the whole point of da Havel's discourse is truth. Right. So that's where the, the interesting part of this comes to back to me, where truth and, 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 and actual there is truth. Right. Um, when you look at the dissidents, the dissidents clearly say it's truth. There is truth. You know, Derrida eventually ran aground when he got to apartheid in South Africa because he said, look, it's not just about discourse and power anymore. That's where he stopped deconstructing when he hit when he got to Mandela. Right. Uh, that it, there is actual truth. <laughs> uh, right. And the apartheid regime is truthfully ugly and truthfully persecuting people, right? Um, and that's to me the interesting part about like how this how these all things fit together. Because I think we're in this, yeah, people talk about the post-truth moment. 
you know, like what does truth mean now? Um, if truth has always been about how people interpret things, you know, it, there's biblical exegesis and so on and so forth. There's all kinds of ways of interpreting truth, right? Um, at the same time, you know, when truth is aligned with guns and weapons and stuff like that, that we're kind of now seeing emerge from these, these groups, right? Um, <clears throat> it's scary because, sure. you know, I, I, uh, I think we all, ultimately we want to live in a world that's safe where people can have rational and, 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 and good disagreements with each other and still be friends or even not friends, but just not want to kill each other. Right. Right. Um, and I don't know, I don't know how we're going to get back to that now. Um, yeah, and because you, there's this, this concept of the epistemic break, you know, this idea right. where, you know, how we know things and how we make decisions about what truth is, um, you know, that clearly there has been a break and it, it's on a, on a mass scale. I mean, I don't, you know, I can't imagine um, Derrida or Demon or Orwell or Foucault particularly ever being able to envision a circumstance where, um, you know, there was, 20% of the population, maybe 30% of the population that no longer has a shared uh, reality with, you know, the rest, of, <laughs> the rest of society. I mean, we're talking, you know, it's not, you know, we do it a disservice. I think if we, we frame this simply in partisan terms, I mean, we've got cross-cutting cleavages um, that used to make, you know, whether they be regional or social or class or ethnic, religious, um, that used to lend a sort of stability to our, our politics and our civic society. And uh, there's a political scientist, Liliana Mason, who wrote a fantastic book, and I'll put it in the description of this video if you're watching this. Um, talk, and her book is uh, Uncivil Agreement. Um, this idea that we've, you know, she lays out the social science behind uh, where we've gotten to this point of, of polarization, where it is people's social identity and their political identity are fused to the point where, you know, there are no bridges left to be built. I mean, literally, you know, there are blue zip codes and there are red zip codes. There are blue counties and red counties now in a way that was never the case before. Um, you know, there was a point in time in, in Colorado where, you know, there were a half dozen what you call battleground counties, uh, counties where there was significant political competition uh, within those counties and those counties, whichever way they swung, they would determine the outturn, outcome of the statewide election. Um, there were 10 of them at the time. And then briefly there was 11 and they were determinative of, you know, who was elected governor, who was elected to the United States Senate. There are none of those counties anymore. There are no counties. I mean, the counties are what they are. There are no swing counties left in Colorado, uh, which is, you know, on one level, I understand it. On another level, it is a reality that's just so bizarre to me that I have a hard time wrapping my head around the idea that we have taken 
geography or political jurisdictions and so sorted ourselves so that there isn't, you know, there are no longer competitive campaigns uh, with, you know, fought within those counties. I mean, it's just a matter of, you know, blue turn counties turn out, red counties turn out, and whichever turns out the most has, you know, controls the, the game at the end of the day, um, as opposed to where we used to have people that lived next door to one another and the chances that there were Democrats in one household and Republicans in the next door household uh, were greater than 50, 50. Uh, there was, you know, particularly if you throw in uh, unaffiliated voters, it was even higher than that. You had that sort of diversity within communities. Now we don't. Um, and it's, you know, well, in, we've, in the, Okay. So in the Go ahead. Where, where I live on my street, it's it's basically every other house is Trump or um, or uh, Biden. You know, I was kind of half and half. I mean, some of my neighbors actually kind of funny because there's this one couple down the street that I really love uh, because they're just obviously kind of a romantic couple. They have they have these great Valentine's things. They put it's an older couple, you know, but they had a. <laughs> a Biden and a Trump sign on their house. So, you know, I don't know if the wife or her husband was pro Trump, whatever, but there were several houses on our street that had two. Right. Um, and so I think like, that's what's, that's, what's interesting about Nebraska to me. Nebraska is way, way more into interesting than people who've never been here. Think about it. Right. Uh, I mean, who would have thought it's obvious now, cause you hear about UNMC in the news, but we are the world-class <laughs> infectious disease center in the United States. I mean, the center, right? Um, heavily respected around the world, revered uh, for medical science, stuff like that. So we have this incredible, and, and then next, and we have these people in the same area who completely contest the science coming out of UNMC. And I think that's interesting, you know what I mean? And this is the stuff I'm pursuing in my film um, because I'm trying to show that we are, we are, we are, we are really, not exactly divided, but we, we are stratified in a, like a really interesting way that has to do with how we, how we, uh, how we deal with science, how we deal with, with, uh, with history. All these things are kind of wrapping up together. You know, a lot of the people who work on the history of science deconstructed science too. Bruno Latour right. was famous for his stuff on uh, science and action showing that you know, scientists were biased and they were influenced by corporations sponsoring their research, stuff like that. So um, I, I, you know, I, and I tend to think I, that's, I, I do think the film can play a role. I'm not sure what role it's going to play. To me, I'm just documenting what I'm seeing. I'm trying, I'm trying, I have to narr I have to figure out how I'm going to do the narration and the script for this. Cause I haven't done the script yet. I'm working on it. Um, but I, per I personally think that I'm going to let people speak for themselves and then everybody is, on my team agrees we need to just let people, I don't want to tell people what I'm thinking or what to think about something, right? I think that we have to assume that at some point people, people can make their own decisions, especially people watching film uh, or interpreting, you know, things. Um, at, at the same time, you know, I, I'm also conditioned by the fact that, you know, I want to be responsible uh, um, and, 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 and to tell the story as it is. Uh, in the moment, um, because I made when I made this decision to make this particular film, I, I was planning on writing a book uh, after I finished the the book that I was uh, after I finished uh, the uh, 
the uh, uh, the art of dissent, I my agent <clears throat> really wants me to focus on my book, <laughs> and so sure. did my wife. Uh, my wife is the least happy about all this stuff because she's saying, "Ah, man, well, I mean, I live. This is my house, so you know, I, I read and write books all the time. This is what I do for a living, right?" And now I'm out in the streets getting, you know, putting like getting afraid I'm going to get shot with rubber bullets or get hit with tear gas. Right. Um, in Lincoln, Nebraska. That's what right. I think is so interesting, because we are in this moment now where every town is in this moment. Every place in the country is going through this. Right. Because these questions, these kind of post-colonial questions about America were left untouched for for without any real interrogation for so long. Uh, the history of race, history of slavery. I mean, people worked on it. People thought about it, really respected research came out of it, but people didn't live it in the way they're living it now. There's something about that's happened this year that's different than any other year, I think, uh, which makes it for really interesting. Um, it's an interesting moment and I want to capture it now. Like, And I'm doing a lot of interviews at the moment. I'm doing an interview this week with um, somebody who's quite controversial in Lincoln. Um, and, you know, I did an interview with, the, like I said, a journalist who literally, I'm going to use it in the movie, he played a death threat um, live. Like, they, he just, they just got it. Um, and it's really, it's like the patriots are coming to get you, you know, fuckers. <laughs> right. uh, literally, this is, what, this, is what the, this is like a news station in Lincoln, Nebraska, getting stuff like this, right? Right. Um, and I just find it, you know... Um, you know, to me, it's just a, it's an interesting thing because I'm also looking at the history of our country, um, the history of all of the things that have happened in America basically since 1989. And it's been a progressive descent downward, I think. Um, the sad part about what happened to me uh, with the U.S. Congress this week, well, not to mention the fact that everything that happened was sad that day, right? Uh, president kind of saying the stuff that incites violence. It's unimaginable. People never would have thought that we would be in this position, right? But what's even like to me as an historian, you know, I grew up in the 1960s and 70s. You know, I, I wasn't old enough to see Kennedy assassinated, but, I, but I, I heard it for the next 10 years of my life. I was born in 63, um, but I did grow up uh, during the Vietnam era and I remember it. I grew up during Watergate. I remember it, right? Um, and and then, despite all the things that Latin America did, uh, the U.S. did in Latin America, the really quite bad things, uh, the kind of and also in Vietnam, right? Um, really controversial, what people would argue is empire acting, right? Uh, Kissinger's deeds, you know, misdeeds. Um, there was still there was still this thing about growing up in the United States, uh, at least for people in my generation. Um, and my, my dad didn't go to high school. He didn't finish high school. So to me, I've always put a lot of stock on, on education and literacy because I'm the first one in my family to go to school, uh, to college. Um, so, you know, I've spent my whole life trying to make up for all the stuff that wasn't done before me in my family. Right. Uh, I think most of us in the first generation, worldview do that right um but you know when and i was nurtured on um you know orwell orwell is a fantastically important writer right uh uh and, and just as an honesty to orwell and that group right that's the 
that's the literature that I kind of grew up just reading and thinking and processing, right? Um, and at the kind of apex of it was kind of 1989, the Cold War ends without really a war and the transformation of power in Eastern Europe goes off without an American intervention for the most part. Uh, George H. Other than soft George, power. Yeah, it was soft power. You know, George, the, the first Bush, uh, to his credit, didn't do anything. Um, in, fa in fact, when I was doing interviews for Art of Descent, he really had, he played no role at all. Uh, uh, and in fact, that's why it succeeded the way it did, because it was not like a direct intervention by the United States, which had not worked before, right? Um, and then and then there was this, you know, and then, and then Havel goes to Congress in 1990. Mandela goes to Congress after the fall of apartheid and gives these speeches, right? If you look at the Havel and Mandela speeches, if you watch them, right, they're magnificent documents. And, but Havel in particular talks about, and both of these people are just world-class intellectuals, uh, political figures, sorry, my kids are coming into the house and my dogs are barking. But, um, but you know, Havel goes to Congress and gives this beautiful speech about the role of American intellectuals in, in creating the United States, right? He talks very specifically, and we use it in the movie, uh, The Art of Descent, about how important American intellectuals were in creating the Declaration of Independence. And you're a country of intellectuals. And that's a great thing to have intellectuals in power, right? Um, because they can process ideas, they can think about ideas, they can think about truth, right? They can understand truth when they see it. Um, and, then, and then he says, but it's a work in progress and you're not perfect. You're far from perfect. You're never going to be perfect, but that's the whole point of having a democracy. <laughs> you're, right. you're striving to be better, right? So one of the images that I got this week, because everybody knows I work on Havel, I got an image from somebody, the, the Make America Great hat on Havel's bust. It was one of the things that was, you know, defiled this week. Um, and, and, and I just thought how sad it was, you know, a country where Havel, one of the kind of people who survived, you know, years of political um, persecution, uh, years in prison, a dissident, um, goes to Congress, gives this beautiful speech about what America could be, right? And here we are, you know, some, you know, decades later, and it's unrecognizable. No world leader with any moral stature ever would go to the United States Congress and give a speech right now. Like, it's not gonna happen. Uh, you know, Merkel's not gonna go to Washington DC and give a speech about how great American democracy is right now. And to me, that's a really sad thing. You know, as an historian, as a father, um, Cause we are not, we're not, we're not on the beacon and we're not the beacon on the hill anymore. Right. Right. Um, and that, that's probably a generational at least issue. I mean, we will not mm -hmm. have sort of the credibility and the standing to do what, you know, America's done really since the advent of the Marshall plan, at least. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I don't know how we find our way back from that. I mean, it, I think it will happen, it, but it's going to take, you know, intervening events. It's not something that we can just sort of wish into being. I'm wondering what you make. I, there's a, this concept that has some um, 
currency on in, on the left, but also a lot on the right of politics being downstream of culture. And, you know, how do you, you know, as we look at both, you know, the current context, but also the events, how do you see that? You know, what what is the if you buy into that notion, which some days I do and some days I don't. I mean, what do you think, what are the cultural antecedents of what we're seeing right now? Uh, it's a good question. Um, you know, and that's, a, it's, it's a bit of the chicken and the egg, right? I mean, which comes first? You, I mean, I, uh, I guess I, I, what I meant by America's not in this place anymore was we look to the presidency. Uh, there was, a, I mean, I didn't believe in trickle-down economics. It's just bullshit. But <laughs> I believed in trickle-down decency, right? Um, like, I believed in those kinds of ideals and, and that, that if you had a president who was aspirational, right? Now, it didn't help that Bill Clinton, who was lofty and had all these great rhetorical skills, did the kind of crap he did with Monica Lewinsky, right? Um so, you know, the part of the part of the issue is we've undone ourselves even by some of the standards. Right. So uh, and the right the right wing rightfully went after Clinton for that stuff. In other words. And so I've always but I've also kind of believed that we, we have people like Kennedy who was inspirational. It wasn't perfect. Kennedy did lots of nonsense um, as well. Uh, but he but his but his but he but he was also inspirational. He believed in, I think, some of the the right the right ideals uh, that are, and he also wrote a book about it. See, the Kennedy thing is interesting to me because he profiled courage. He won a Pulitzer Prize. People don't talk about this very often, but he won a Pulitzer Prize before he became president, right? Um, and so that that's interesting because there's a literary aspect. Uh, and getting to your question, I've always thought there was a literary aspect to politics, right? Uh, and Certainly so traditionally. Yeah, they're, they're the, and that's the thing about Trump, which I actually have completely against the main current on Trump. You know, um, they may have been ghost, ghost written, but they were still published books under Trump's name. So I actually thought the real interpretation of Trump was the intellectual. I wanted to write an article for like The New Yorker or something about Trump, the intellectual. If you want to undermine Trump's attack and rhetoric, pin the title intellectual on Trump. <laughs> like that, that we could have done it four years ago and been done with it. Because once you pin that thing on that donkey, the tail on that donkey, uh, in America, that's the death nail to get called intellectual. Right. The, but the, the irony is Stevenson that, curse. Yeah, but the thing is, it's true. He wrote books about it. I, I have, a, I, I read all about his books, right? Uh, and if you think about everything, and the part of the reason I did that is I'm a historian. People often go back and say, well, if you had read Mein Kampf, would you have been able to predict what Hitler did? Well, yeah, if you read Mein Kampf, you would, because he says what he's going to do, right? He's going to go after France. He lays it out really specifically. All the key points that he enacts during his time in power were laid out in Mein Kampf, right? right. Many of them, not all, not all the Holocaust elements, but many of them, right? And so I think that one of the things, the mistake the left made with Trump was never to take him serious as an intellectual, because of course he's not an intellectual in a traditional sense, but he used literature to get there, right? You know, the his 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 famous book on, you know, the art of the deal, right? There's a little bit of a, a twist in the art of dissent when we made a title for our last movie, 
it was a little bit of play on that too. <laughs> sure. Uh, we were playing, we were playing with lots of things, but we were also playing with hobble saddles, but, but there was like, the, there's a little twitch there that we did on purpose because, you know, the art of descent, what could be more kind of subversive is to use a, a country like Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic to say what was great about America, right? Um, and it was intentional. We, we were really kind of thinking about playing with those kinds of things. Um, so I think, you know, going back to your question, I think the problem now is that the base, the Trump base that everybody's chasing, right? The, the group that, you know, Lindsey Graham was groveling for and, you know, God, Ted Cruz, guy with absolutely no morality whatsoever. I think the thing that most people like myself, I mean, if somebody calls your wife those names, what the hell are you doing courting Trump? Are you, are you kidding me? Like, that's where I see these kind of like that group of the Republican Party has completely lost their compass, right? And and the, the what happened in Congress this week is a good illustration of it, right? These, these people knowingly <laughs> took part in a charade to undermine the American uh, political kind of established, you know, American politics, right? Uh, in this sense, I mean, if you listen to... Uh, if you listen to Ted Cruz, he's very crafty. You know, I don't consider him a great intellectual or even that smart. People are impressed by his Princeton and Harvard degrees. Who cares? I mean, seriously, if you've been to those places, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, it really doesn't matter. Um, what matters to me is uh, is how he he kind of parses words, so he's never quite like you can't really say he said that. Right. Um, but at the same time, I mean, if, if he salvages his political career, I'll be like surprised. Um, I don't think there's there's a way for people like Ted Cruz to come back from the abyss they threw us over uh, this week, this last week. Right. That's just my view. Um, I, but I don't think I'm wrong. I think most people, you know, now, on the other hand, there are people and talk about Nebraska again, Ben Sass, right. Ben, Sen Senator Ben Sass. He's probably the only Republican in the Republican Party now, uh, at least in power, you know, sitting sitting in office, who's actually been on this same page the entire time of their Trump presidency, except for um, the governor of uh, Ohio. What's his name? Um, I'm forgetting his name. You know, yes, ran for um, president. Uh, 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 I'm just forgetting his name. Um, anyway, but Sass is relevant because Sass was going into the the Senate chambers, right, in the, in the Congress with a pre-prepared statement, not, uh, you know, denouncing what the Republicans are doing with regard to Trump. Now, I think that's interesting because Sass is, is also making the kind of move on the intellectual arena. He's written two best-selling books, right? He's, a, he's, a, he's got a PhD from Yale. He went to Harvard undergraduate. Uh, he says the leads you get in, in terms of pedigree from elite institutions. Um, and he's and he's been interesting because he's also come at power through literature, which I think is really fascinating. Right. Um, and if you and his speech, I mean, I like you this week, I watched the speeches. I watched all the speeches. I was watching it before and after this stuff happened. Um, and, you know, I, I just. Yeah, when you thought, think about what happens, this crowd comes in, smears feces all over the walls, they, they desecrate offices, they 
break down things. They still lecterns. They do all this kind of stuff, right? Uh, all because they say they're being called to to do this because of the president of the United States, right? Um, and then and then they have ties to probably take people hostage. My guess is they probably would have taken. I mean, it's pretty clear. I mean, they killed a police officer, right? Um, um, and several people died. Uh, it's clear that they they could have uh, had plans to kidnap people like SAS, kidnap people, kidnap or execute people like Nancy Pelosi, uh, Bernie Sanders, right? It's clear that if they had actually gotten in and done what they maybe intended to do, um, we would be in a different position right now, right? Um, and I don't know how they got them out of the chambers to, to a safe place. I don't know, because it just didn't look like there was enough people in the building to, to, to do this properly, right? Um, but, you know, I, I do think that people taking, and also um, the, gov, the the senator, um, I'm forgetting names today. I'm just, I'm very good about this. Um, you know, from, from Utah. Um, uh, Willard Mitt Romney. <laughs> Romney. Romney's also been clear about this too. He's had a very yes. just, uh, you know, I didn't like Romney when he ran for president at all because he was way too part of the, you know, global elite, really wealthy kind of thing. And I was bothered by a lot of his kind of extremely kind of pejorative things he did to working class people or talked to how he talked about working class people. Um, at the same time, he's had a very clear moral position. So Romney uh, has, and so has Sass. Um, and, you know, you've seen what happened to them when they are going through the, the airports, they're being harassed now. Uh, they probably need security to get around. What happens, you know, I've, I, there's a congressman who goes to the gym where I, where I live, uh, one of the Nebraska congressmen. Um, and, you know, they don't have escorts when they're in the gym. No. Uh, they're, they're just regular people when they hit the ground here in these state, you know, Colorado and Nebraska. Um, and there are a lot of people who are quite angry and they're carrying arms now, right? Uh, I, a lot of the protests that I've been to this year, everybody is armed. Um, and in fact, my wife went to a protest with me this, not so long ago, and she was really freaked out because, you know, she, <laughs> this is like, I thought you were this quiet intellectual who just sit and wrote books, you know, hang out and study and like, you know, what the hell? <laughs> oh God, you're filming these people, right? Like, right. I mean, really seriously, like going around, I have film and I've got like, five different cameras i'm walking around people filming everything and you know like everybody is carrying a gun right uh not just on the right side the left is carrying a gun too so it was really funny because there's a black lives matter protester on one side of the street uh with a like kalishnikov <laughs> I mean, seriously like an old kalishnikov and then the uh the on the other side of the street the trump supporters have these massive like you know body armor things and these machine guns and or whatever they are um and it's and this is in lincoln nebraska just on right in front of the capitol building right um and i just you know again i think the movie i'm making now this is i think it's going to be good because <laughs> nobody expects to see this from a place like nebraska you know right. and i don't and i uh, half the time i'm out there wondering what what happened to this quiet little town where I moved, you know, I moved here from LA, you know, uh, after the Rodney King riots and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, it's Nebraska was, we didn't have a Starbucks when I moved here, right? 
now, <laughs> now we've got all now, now we got all everything right, including all everything else right, the kind of global things. Uh, but I think you know part of the going back to your question about like where politics comes from and like this culture. I would like to believe that it comes from you know the the, the literary kind of political figures like Sass. Uh, I, I know my colleagues here are gonna just vomit when they hear me say that, right? <laughs> In the sense that, you know, they, they don't like people like me saying nice things about people like Sass because, you know, I'm not supposed to. Well, you know, he's, a, he's, he's interesting. He's writing right. books. He is a and very he's interesting figure. Yeah, and, and, uh, but, uh, but we have to have an open mind. I mean, if we're going to get through this, if we go down to this, go down left and right, and, and we don't talk to each other anymore, we're dead because we're going to go to war, right? Um, right now, I've seen on the streets people armed on both sides. Right. So if we stay in this position for too long, uh, it's going to be really hard to come back from it. Right. Uh, and the problem is what happened this week. And even I did it today on uh, one of my social media accounts, got an argument about, you know, what we should do with Fox News today. <laughs> so I was really pissed. I mean, I, I the last couple of nights I used to watch Fox News. It's kind of like watching like Stalinist TV. Uh, right. because I would, they would like be state TV to me. Like I'd listen to them and they're like, so I, I had to, I've started to watch Fox news maybe about six, seven years ago because I wanted to, to understand how they think and how they reason. Right. Uh, and they, beyond they, that, the, the way they structure their narrative. I mean, I uh, used yeah. to watch it years past pr prior to the Trump era. I, you know, they had a very specific formula for each hour, you know, and the mm -hmm. a block was message one B block was message two. Meanwhile, you had this Chiron going across was sort of, you know, is teasing block C and D, but reinforcing the messages. And it was, you know, if you take out the normative aspect of it, it was beautifully structured as persuasive communication. And yeah. it, you know, that in and of itself is something, um, obviously very effective, very profitable, you know, great for ratings much of the time for, for literally decades now. And, you know, a certain flavor of production values that sort of, um, you know, it created not a brand so much as, but this meta narrative, you know, this, this very distinct worldview. And you contrast that with MSNBC and, you know, MSNBC, uh, you know, over the years has, has changed a great deal. You look at the nature of their programming, but also just the way they, they structure shows. I mean, you have, you know, mm -hmm. these shows like, you know, Rachel Maddow, who I think is a, a brilliant communicator and sort of a, a long form narrative. You've got Chris Hayes. You also have some of these other figures that are, you know, not very <laughs> good at, at communication. I mean, it, both, yeah, you know, I mean, in terms of structuring a narrative and in terms of of just the the blocking and tackling of persuasive communication. But the thing about Fox News, because, you know, I, I so I turned on. Well, well when I watched the um, the the Capitol, I was watching CNN. Right. Because I, I resort back to my like, okay, I'm gonna need to watch the news, <laughs> you know, right. not the CNN that was the 24/7 against Trump, which was actually ridiculous at for so long, right? I think they actually fostered a lot of the the kind of extreme 
hatred towards the news because they never let go. They were, I think, too much oftentimes, the CNN group. Um, and But when the Capitol was under attack, I was watching CNN. But at night I was watching, I was flipping back between like four or five different stations and I was watching Fox and I was disgusted uh, because like, you know, the Capitol's just been attacked and then they're gonna go down the same goddamn meta narrative, right? Uh, about corruption, about this and that. Um, and it's like, these people clearly realize their ship might sink because I think most Americans, right or left, are not okay with storming the Capitol and potentially assassinating senators or congressmen. They're, they're not okay with it. They're not okay with people breaking into a building and killing a police officer who's guarding the capital of the United States, right? I don't think most people are okay with that. Even, and I have a, the, a friend who was filming in DC this last week was at the Trump protest. I've, I was at the Trump protest in, in Omaha too, right? Uh, I was filming there um, and I was with the crowd that got lost in Omaha. I, I filmed it. <laughs> I, was the, I was in that crowd walking back to my car for like five hours after that, after that rally. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I, most of those people are pretty decent people that go to those rallies. I mean, most of my friends will hate me for saying this, but it's true. They're just politically engaged. And this is kind of a fun thing, you know, the president of the United States in town. Right. Um, and I also saw, like, I, I was carefully watching the, the audience. I was not with the, in the press section where they wanted the press to be. I was in the crowd on purpose. Um, cause I was trying to get like the, grand level view of what a Trump rally, uh, obviously with two masks on and everything else, but, but, you know, uh, but it's true. Most, a lot of people were there because he flew in on air force one. Um, he's the president of the United States. This is, this is, I think what the left never got about this whole thing is they tend to say, well, these people are crazy or whatever. He's the president of the United States. He's not, it's not, a, it's just anybody, right? He's flying in an Air Force One. Of course, he's playing Rocky or I have the Tiger when he gets off the plane. He's doing, <laughs> I have that film. And he's doing all this weird stuff, this choreographed, weird 70s, you know, kind of music stuff. I don't I never got it. But anyway, um, but he was there and a lot of people were there to see the plane. They were taking pictures of the plane uh, because it's the, I mean, I used, to, I used to do it too when, you know, a president would fly into town. And there's an Air Force base near where I lived. The, the president came. I've done to two or three places where the Air Force One flies in. It's a hugely, it's a big deal for a little kid who's five or a parent wants to take the, to see Air Force One, right? Um, there's that part of the rally. And of course, there's the other part, the political part, where it just goes into a different register. But I don't think people really understood that part of this was the presidency. Right now, of course, a lot of people on the left said, well, that's the problem. It is the presidency. Right. right? Sure. But I think in terms of why a lot of people were attracted to this, because people have always been attracted to power. Right. right. People, yeah, especially I think I mean, the presidency. I think there's sort of deep antecedents in our evolutionary psychology that drives so much of this. I mean, on all sorts of of facets of it from identity politics to to what we're seeing this week I, it would be impossible given what we know about recorded human history uh, to not understand it to an extent within 
in that framing. I mean, it's something about human nature and our response to certain stimuli that, that get us to these points, um, mm. which is one of those things where I think the left fails horribly. Um, yeah. You know, in sort of understanding, you know, people's core motivations and uh, some of these ideas that, that really appear to be universals. I mean, they just, there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's these archetypes, whether they're represented in literature or mythology or some other form that are very powerful and they're recurring. And I, you'd have to say, you know, they recur for a reason. Yeah. I think, you know, that's, that's the, and my friend who was at the DC rally, he was texting me when he was there and he was telling me what was happening and I just got the film um, this week from from him, um, and and he said, you know, ninety eight percent of people were just at the rally. They were there because you know it's a presidential rally. It's opposition, you know, to the current status quo, whatever that means. I mean, most people know that there there's going to be a transfer of power. Maybe the group that stormed the Capitol. Maybe yeah, I mean, they're disconnected from that reality. Who knows what Who knows what they believe was going to happen? But most people. Even if you, even for Fox News pushing that stuff, they know there's going to be a transfer of power. Right? It's inevitable. There was an election. All of the legal challenges failed, um, and you know what? They want there to be a transfer of power because if we go down a place where we don't have a peaceful transfer of power, we are in a world we were we're never going to come back from that. Right. Uh, and I think even Fox News, as bad as they are with the distortions and lies and the kind of what um, what Havel would call evasive thinking, like, you know, instead of uh, it's a perfect trick. I mean, and Havel diagnoses his, per- his most beautiful essays, evasive thinking and talks about like, you know, basically uh, something falls from the sky, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, like a flower pot falls on somebody's head. And the government talks about this. They're talking about cows and cows in the pasture, right? That's evasive. They're not talking about the thing that happened. They're talking about that what they want you to talk about, <laughs> right? right? And that's what Fox News is to me. It's evasive thinking from the beginning to end, right? Almost all of it. There's some there's some interesting stuff they do. Not they're not always like that, but you know, Shanity, uh, Sean Hannity is almost always like that, right? right. Uh, the thing is, I also went to the Trump rally. It's probably the only person that I know who actually went to the Trump rally in Omaha, like all my friends, <laughs> like, no, you didn't go. Yeah, I went, you know, I filmed it too, where two different cameras. And, and I, I think that the, um, my experience about that, uh, first, um, because I, I have access to Trump's uh, text. Um, I've been getting texts all the time, bombarded by text, right? Uh, to give to that yeah, campaign stuff and so on and so forth. And what's interesting to me about that is how much money they made on it, right? Oh my God. Um, yeah, I mean, half a billion dollars or something, uh, sending yeah. those things out. Um, now, yeah, I'm one of those question. people, I gave money to Trump just so I would continue to get a dollar. Yeah, you get this text. You get this text. I, I get the emails yeah. and they were, yeah. you know, in the weeks after the election, they were literally on almost an hourly basis and they're, yeah, you know, but they, they are, I mean, they were coming to me during, during the protests, they were coming to me. So I was getting them during the protests and you can bet that I have those archived. Right. I also <laughs> archived his, uh, his Twitter feed that day. Right. 
Uh, I'm glad I did because it's not even up anymore, right? Right. Um, so going back to your question is uh, originally kind of we started talking, you know, off before we did the interview, we we're talking about Napoleon, right? And I think that there, you know, I always go back and look into the Napoleonic history when Napoleon steps down and goes to Elba. You know, what his first he said he would do it. Well, when he first steps down from power, he said he wants his son to be named because he was emperor, right? Um, now, the difference between Trump and Napoleon is huge. I mean, <laughs> Napoleon created modern Europe in a lot of ways. He created a legal system. He created the Academy of Sciences in France. He was heavily influenced by science and mathematics. He was an intellectual of, of uh, like a, a different kind of intellectual. He's really in, involved in, in sciences. You know, the Academy Francaise starts with Napoleon. You know, they invade Egypt and they start the Academy Francaise. Um, and there's, I mean, well, he started before, but but the the point is that he was he was a, a man of the Enlightenment, right? This is not the Enlightenment with Trump. It's a completely different ballgame, right? Um, now, at the same time, when Napoleon uh, was uh, when he was sent to Elba, um, you know, he he comes back. Obviously, he he realizes he's probably going to be sent further away, which is why he came back. And then you have that hundred days where he returns to power, and then he's defeated in, in at Waterloo, uh, and then you know the Congress of Vienna meets and, and banishes him before that. Um, when he when he tries to come back, the the the, the what he did was unify the world against his his authoritarianism, basically. Um, uh, but he also, he also created a lot of weird art. I mean, Beethoven was writing music in response to him. Um, and, and so Trump has done the same thing a lot. Like the weird thing about Trump, we've, when I started making this movie, The Four Seasons of COVID, I promised my wife I would not go down the political rat hole, right? rabbit hole. I would not do it. I wanted to make a movie that was about something else. I'm down the rabbit hole right now. <laughs> like, right. you know, it's impossible to make a movie that I'm making right now without being in that rabbit hole because, and this is the thing, the kind of sad thing, even for people like me who tried to stay aloof, you can't stay aloof. I mean, this is like, to me, it's the revisionist. It's a lot of the people who work on decolonization, a field that I'm, uh, I work in as a professional. The whole library appears books on decolonization. That's why I study. So anti-colonial movements, stuff like that. And there's a big mistake that some prominent uh, people who work on decolonization made. They came, the, I don't want to mention it, but I'll mention a title. Provincializing Europe is a really important book that people took seriously. I didn't like it um, in, in particular because it, it, it kind of said, well, you know, in the anti-colonial movement, you have, you know, it, the story of Europe is no longer the main thing. It's kind of like saying, you know, um, that Trump's not the main thing, even though he's just, he's had an impact on everything we're doing. You cannot get away from this, this little last four years without being pulled, pulled into this, this orbit, uh, because it's such a big deal, right? Um, and I, it's like trying to write a history of anti-colonialism without the British empire or without the British the archives or whatever, uh, you can do it, but it's not going to be really interesting because it's not going to, you can't have it both way, both ways. You need to, you need to have them in conversation with each other. Right. Um, there, and, and I think that Trump is kind of like that. He's, he's an empire in a certain sense that 
you can't write the history of the resistance of Trump without actually talking about Trump, right? right. Um, and I and I think that that's kind of where we are in our. Um, we're way off topic now, but but I kind of think like that when the Twitter. So the question now becomes, well, if he doesn't have access to his normal platforms, you know, and Twitter obviously is his, his fond one. Um, I mean, I followed Trump on Twitter. Um, I don't retweet his stuff. I just follow it just to kind of be. Um, to, to know what he's saying and doing. Um, the question is, to me, the question is, does that movement go underground and where, right? Because if they don't have access to the normal platforms and, 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 and now there's an organized kind of almost militia or guerrilla movement to it, right? Um, and if, if Trump is allowed to come back, from Elba, you can bet there's going to be a hundred days, right? Um, and the problem is that Trump's kids uh, could very well be what Napoleon was trying to achieve, which was to create a dynasty, right? And those that fought fifty five hundred thousand dollars, those kids are going to have access to that, right? And Trump's kids are as poisonous as vile as they come, in terms of this false narrative, fictional stuff that they're creating, right? right? Um, and they are the next generation. A lot, a lot of people are talking about this kind of, we ever, can we ever get away from authoritarianism now? And is the next authoritarianism going to be real, authoritarian going to be really dangerous? The next one, if it's like a baby Trump, <laughs> uh, yeah, it could be really bad because they are a lot smarter. They're, they've been educated by the best universities, right? Uh, they are far more articulate, right? Um, and they have that visceral hatred uh, uh, of, uh, you know, what we can see is the democratic institution now. They know what democratic process played out. They know that. Come on. You've got to be kidding me. These people don't know what he has access to every intel in the world. They know those elections took place and they're fair. This is nonsense that they're, they're generating, right? Um, I think personally, um, and I think when those, I, that's yeah. an empirical fact. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. tested yeah. in multiple courts, multiple jurisdictions, and just, you know, having watched ballots be counted before in various jurisdictions, uh, you know, the idea of massive election fraud is really fanciful. I mean, it, the mechanisms just don't exist by which you can accomplish those ends. So. Yeah. And the thing about this is that it's kind of like to me, and I also work in the history of terrorism because um, a lot of my work in North Africa and, and France is on terrorism, uh, you know, terrorism and national liberation. That's kind of my real specialty. Well, Fred's Fanon uh, is sort of the, the yeah. inventor of terrorism. Yeah, and I, I wrote a lot about uh, Fanon and, and the justifications for Fanon and that he used and so on and so forth. And his the way he used identity politics. My first book was called um, The Uncivil War, uh, Decolonization and uh, Identity Politics. So, so I was looking at how decolonization created a kind of identity politics that France um, lives with today, right? Um, and also third world revolutionaries live with because Fanon was very influential Throughout the right. third, you know, and 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 when I lived in California, uh, Eldridge Cleaver was had an office next to me in in Laverne, in the University of Laverne. Mm -hmm. I used to hang out with Eldridge Cleaver all the time. <laughs> yeah, it was and really no funny. He had a, 
He had a copy of Wretched <laughs> of the Earth on his. Uh, he did, and, and he has uh, on the first one of the first Wretched of the Earth is a quote by Eldridge Cleaver. Uh, you know, um, because he influenced the Black Panthers, uh, liberational philosophies and stuff right. like that. Um, and and it's just kind of interesting to me because, you know, the the if the right now gets a phenom, we're going to be in serious trouble. Uh, if because they've already appropriated the discourse and the logic and the circuitous reasoning and so on and so forth about power and discourse, right? We know that, right? The question is, and we know how important Fanon was to the to people who believed in believe that violence was the way to respond, right? Right. If or was the legitimate get, means to respond. Yeah, you know, the like the only legitimate means. And and then this, you know, this is a debate among my my scholars. And I'm I'm uh, given what the French were doing, it might have been the only effective response because there's no way the French were ever going to give up colonial Algeria uh, without, <laughs> there, there, without there's blood. no way, without blood. I mean, there's no way they're going to do it because you know why? One of the people I interviewed was um, a really good friend of mine uh, um, 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 wrote the question, Henri Alleg. He wrote the question, which is the kind of uh, the best book ever published on, on torture by a victim of torture. Henri Alleg was a close, it was a friend of mine and he wrote that book in 1958. Um, and it, it was smuggled out of the prison in Algiers. You know, he spent several years in prison. I have the last interview with Alleg. I remember going back to the film work, the last one he gave before he died. I filmed him in Paris and my wife and I are gonna bring this out as a film like a because i've got some film some fln film that i'm going to use now to make a little mini movie to to for this just for, just for free i mean just because i want to bring out the interview put it out there um but you know france would never give it up right uh would never give up power and they were torturing their own citizens they were torturing a jewish man uh, like was jewish um after the holocaust in Algeria, <laughs> uh, that's how bad the French colonial empire really was about uh, you know, freedom and dignity and so on and so forth. Um, and, and so the illusion that you could just kind of respond with you know, writing documents or writing, they tried that for decades, right? The, the Algerian national strike. And, and, but the thing is, Fanon wasn't from Algiers. He, he, wasn't, he was from Antonique. He wasn't even Muslim, right? And so I, I think that there was some kind of appropriation uh, of Algerian history put into a Marxist discourse that became Fanon, Fanon's theories, um, which is fair enough. I mean, everybody appropriates and puts into their own worldview. Um, at the same time, you know, uh, if the right wing gets some, someone like Fanon now, right? Um, and we had short Sorel and we have other people like that. If they get someone that's, someone like that, we're, there's going to be trouble, uh, my view, right? Um, highly articulate. And if they can, uh, the thing about it is, I don't know how we're going to respond to it. Um, I've been in, because uh, I teach terrorism at Nebraska, I helped found um, our um, a group of people who train people uh, for going to counterterrorism in the United States, right? So I helped found a uh, uh, at the university, we have a uh, we have a center that basically trains people uh, to understand terrorism. A lot of people go into the FBI and CIA and stuff like that. Um, uh, I'm not involved in that 
directly. I've just teach classes on the history of terrorism, right? But because of that, I've been to the FBI, I've been to CIA, been to different places and uh, Homeland Security. And when I was the last of those places, meeting with them, talk about, you know, like how we train our students to understand these kinds of threats. They said the number one, this is like 10 years ago, the number one problem is, is this group, the, the kind of stuff that just sees the capital. The number one terrorist threat, even after Al-Qaeda struck us, was the right-wing militia groups uh, that were deeply entrenched all over the country, right? Um, and they were the number one threat. The second threat was, you know, what's going to happen with people, uh, like how radical how radical groups will come out of, you know, the kind of the turbulence and warfare of Africa, right? That was another concern of Homeland Security and other groups. But the number one U.S. threat is the is the right wing militias, and uh, you know, I cannot for the life of me understand how they weren't prepared for the what happened on the Capitol, knowing what I know about how these people are already thinking about these issues. Right. Um, um, now, the only reason I think it happened this way, and this is from being in the streets, right, this year, I'm, I'm sorry I'm going on so long, but I think it's going, it happened this way for a reason. Um, having been in the streets where even in Lincoln, Nebraska, there was a really heavy kind of over, there was a militarization of the police, right? Uh, people were severely wounded by uh, rubber bullets and, and tear gas and all that kind of stuff. Journalists were tackled <laughs> doing their job in, in, in Nebraska. Um, I think part of what happened was, and then what happened in DC with the Black Lives Matter overreaction. Uh, I think uh, there are two possible kind of scenarios. I'm, I'm sure they gave this out. Uh, one, uh, if we respond with heavy militarization, these guys, the ones who are in DC are armed. Most of the right. Black Lives Matter people are not armed. They're peaceful protesters, right? They might've done a lot of things, you know, burned buildings and that kind of stuff in different parts of the country. But in general, they're not armed. They don't make arming themselves part of their, you know, everyday life, right? Whereas a lot of the Trump supporters, the people who were there were armed. Right. So number one, if you confront with the, the you know, engage, you're going to have to really engage because they're going to have assault right. rifles. Right. Um, I think that's part of it. And the second thing is having overreacted to the extent that they did. Right. They didn't want to do it again. That's the second a possible third one is what happens if the 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 right, the left and right wings were out in the streets at the same time. And the police would be caught in the middle of them, right? So I think that what, what I'm thinking about, like what happened, why it happened the way it happened, is they were afraid of all of those different things possibly happened, and they radically underestimated what the intent of the group was, right? I mean, if the people, sorry, if you can hear that, my dogs go crazy. If they, if they go into the state, the, the US Capitol, with ties to you know, take people hostage, it's pretty clear that they they intend to do something, right? And my guess is, like I said, if they had gotten Nancy Pelosi, they might have executed her. Um, I mean, if they if they're going to go to jail for killing a policeman, why not go to? I mean, I, right. I don't. In the logic of what happened, I can see that that, that that's a real possibility, which right. is probably why the FBI and the FBI probably knows that now. Uh, they've probably gone through the hard drives and searched the places they need to, and they're going to find more information. Question is who was actually organizing that?
Um, right. And if it was organized, I don't, I, I, that's what I think we're going to have to wait and see. Right. And again, you kind of get down to the definition of what's organization and what's not. And I, I think there's another factor at play too. And that is, you know, ever since Waco, I think there is a great fear of creating martyrs on the right um, that would lead to further radicalization. And I don't know that that necessarily guides tactical planning, but as a strategic consideration, I think it's probably in the backs of their minds. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we had the Oklahoma bombing trial here in Denver in the 90s and, you know, uh, you know watching that, you know, I think there is a concern among, you know, relatively well-considered folks that, you know, what is the response and what is, you know, what, what's provoc <clears throat> provocative, you know, what, it, mm -hmm. what would serve to make things worse. Um, and I think mm -hmm. that that probably, and, and there's always the other possibility that there were, you know, and we've heard that, that it was an inside job, that there were people within, um, mm -hmm. the Capitol mm -hmm. Police uh, that, you know, were willing to sort of turn a blind eye or let people in or give directions. I mean, that, that's apparently been witnessed. Um, so I think there's a number of things. I, it'll be interesting to see, you know, I, I assume we'll see something like a 9-11 commission report on the backside of this. Um, but we're going to have a, a lot more information about who these people are already. You know, we're mm -hmm. in into scores of arrests and, um, you know, great work being done by journalists to figure out who these folks are, identify them. Um, so I think that's all part of the thing. Hey, we've gone on for an hour and a half. Oh. So I think <laughs> right, what, so. what I'd love to do is do, do a part two at some point in the future okay. when, we, when we see a little bit more. Um, yeah. okay. Particularly anytime you're about to release a film, I'd love to have one of these discussions. Um, yeah. You have a We've, fascinating frame. <laughs> well, we're gonna try to do. Um, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm working. I'm editing that movie right now um, and going through all the films. and And our goal is to because we have this movie that we just finished. It's, it's out. Um, we just got accepted into another film festival today. So, and we're going. We're going to Black Hills next. That's uh, so people are interested in watching where the movie I just made is going. Um, and we've been winning awards. We won the Big Apple Film Festival in New York City Best Documentary. We just won a Best Documentary Award in Amman Jordan, which was really cool. I think um, for for the reach of our film. Um, and you know, I our goal. I my goal is to finish. I, I don't want to. I have this, I have a couple of movies I want to make and another book I want to write, but um, I want to finish this this year. So we're going to, I'm going to try to cut it off in March, April, where I've stopped filming. So, and the way that in the movie in Nebraska, it's, it's, you'll see why there's a March, April ending to it. You'll, when, when sure. you see it, it'll be like, that's slowing fruit. That was so obvious. <laughs> well, yeah, obvious to most people, maybe, but you know, I, I saw it first. Um, <laughs> and so, <laughs> uh, and so anyway, so we got, to, and I want to, I don't want to have this movie take another three years because the last one took three years to make. Right. I right. mean, literally editing, I had six hour movie. I made to an hour and 45 minutes. Um, so I'll, I'll keep you posted and we'll follow each other on, you know, Facebook and Twitter. All right. And stuff. Um, well, thank so you, thanks Professor. for talking to me. I hope I probably way too long, talked about way too much. No, this is me. great. I mean, I'd love this ability to have an in-depth conversation with somebody. And 
um, we we don't have these opportunities often enough, and I I think that impoverishment of things uh, probably creates some of the the difficulties we see right now. So, and I think the the, the silver lining I've been talking about this on film festivals of being online is most more people can see us now, right? So right. in other words, um, I've now shown a movie at seven film festivals, you know. Um, I've never been to one. <laughs> Still haven't been to a film festival yet. Uh, so hopefully when the next one's out, we can actually go to a film festival. But I, right. there's a secret in our movie. Uh, I should, I'll, I'll be, I'll just drop it right now, but I won't explain it. This is not the big one. Uh, COVID is not the big one. It's not even close. Just, just to wake people up a little bit. This is not the big one. <laughs> and I have it on very good expert, expert knowledge that this is not it. So we have just gone through a little little one. Imagine right. a big one, right? And now you got to watch my movie when it comes out. You'll see why I said that. So. All right. Okay, Thank cool. you. Thank you. Thanks. Take Bye -bye. care. Bye.